All right, so into Romans. Let's go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 3, if you're not already there. We're really just picking up and continuing with our verse-by-verse study through the book. Uh, And we're just moving our way through. We've had a lot of bad news up to this point. But what's really sweet is when we get to verse 21, we got this phrase, but now. That's a, and that's a big deal right there. That, that but now, that contrast is going to be a huge deal for us. But before we get in to kind of salivate and give us an appetite for what we're about to read, I want to put up a quote um, from a commentator that I read this week that I really enjoyed. And he said this, this section, the one we're about to study, is the very heart of the book of Romans. For this reason, all Christians ought to memorize verses 21 through 26. If someone should ask me if you could have just six verses out of the Bible and all the rest be taken away, which would you take? I would select these six verses. All of God's gospel, good news is there, and in a way found nowhere else in the Word of God. And that's written by a guy named Alvin McLean. And, you know, I, and I tend to agree with them. And, and, you know, as a, as a Bible teacher, when you get to a passage like this, the temptation is just open it, read it, and go home. Don't, don't mess it up. You know, it's kind of like, <laughs> like a waiter. You know, their, their one job in a restaurant is get the food from the kitchen to the table without spilling it. And I feel that way this morning as we embark on this passage. And so my goal is, is not to spill the food, okay, this morning. Because it's all right here, packed in here, and it's all keyed off of this little phrase here, but now. And you know, as we've been looking in the, in the book of Romans, Paul has completely showed up mankind, but now God is going to show out. And that's what he's been doing. He's been setting up this contrast that nobody's good. No, not one. In fact, look at chapter 3, verse 9. He says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. None, 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 none. All, 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 all encompassing. Nobody's good enough. That's the conclusion of the first three chapters of the book of Romans. But now, see, the, the bad news is, is you can't get there on your own. See, the book of Romans, again, as we, as we stated before, is that God requires righteousness to get to heaven. We've been looking at the first three chapters that states nobody's got that righteousness. And now we're going to find that a righteous God who demands righteousness is also a God who provides righteousness. And see, that's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what Paul is going to complete his thought here in Romans 3.21, starting there, is he's going to complete his thought that he started all the way back in chapter 1. If you want to flip there with me, you can. If you want to just listen to me, read it. In verse 16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And then notice this next phrase, verse 17, for in it, in what? In the gospel, in this good news concerning, concerning Jesus Christ. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And so Paul has just finished building his case that nobody's got the righteousness that they need. Not the immoral sinner, not the moral sinner, not the religious sinner. It's not by coming to church that you get the righteousness of God. It's not by doing good works that you get the righteousness of God. In fact, we noticed uh, back in Isaiah 64, 6, that all our righteousnesses are like what? Filthy rags. And it gets even worse. Those are menstrual rags in the Hebrew. This is dirty. So God's not collecting dirty laundry. 
You know, you've seen those signs, your mom doesn't live here, clean up after yourself, or your mom doesn't live here, do your own laundry. It was a, I reminded of a joke that Carrie told me one day, somebody posted on Facebook, you know, I wonder what we're going to have for dinner tonight. I wonder who's going to do this laundry. I wonder who's going to do this. And then the lady said, oh yeah, then I remembered I'm the mom, you know. And you know, God is, God is not collecting dirty laundry. You're not, you and I are not going to impress God by how hard we've tried to keep his law, how many good works we've tried to do, how many times we darken the door of a local church, how, many, how much money we gave to a church ministry or any of those things. God has a wholly different way of taking sinful man and making them righteous, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. And so he says, but now. And we're going to see that in verse 21, let's read it. He says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And so we're going to see that a couple of descriptions here about God's righteousness. How does God make man right? And you know what? It's completely different than what man thinks. Man thinks, well, yeah, I broke the law, but I'm going to really try hard going forward to, do, to stop doing those things. I'm going to stop drinking. I'm going to stop cussing. I'm going to stop getting angry at my wife and kicking my dog. And I'm going to start going to church. And, and, and that's how man approaches. And, you know, it's just almost like a diet. Guess when they typically want to start it? Tomorrow, right? Don't start diets tomorrow. It don't work. You got to start them right now. But that's how mankind typically views righteousness to get to heaven. Well, I'll just, I'll just work on it. And they got this concept that if I do a little bit more good than a little bit bad, then God is forced to accept me. And we've already studied in the book of Romans. That's not how it works. God doesn't judge on the curve like your favorite high school teacher used to do. He judges and his standard is utmost perfection. And so God's righteousness is going to come apart from the law. In fact, this word apart is really a strong word. It means absolutely apart from, absolutely away from. God is not even touching the law as a requirement for you to get to heaven. You know why? Because you and I can't keep the law. Unless we boast and think that we can, just think about how many times you've told a lie in your life. That's just one of the Ten Commandments. How many times have you stolen? And everyone's like, oh, yeah, when I was three years old, I stole a cookie. No, you, you've stolen more than that. Because you steal time, you steal things from work. You, you, there's lots of things that we steal. And, you know, God says, don't commit adultery. I say, oh, I'm safe on that. But, but Jesus says that if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Because we learn back in Romans chapter 2 that God is going to judge us, not based on what we see or what we promote or what we put out there, but based on what? The secrets of our heart. What goes on in the dark? What goes on when nobody else is looking? And see, that's the standard. We also learn in James 2.10 that if Even if, and that's a big if, right? That's a big fat if. Even if you kept the whole law, James 2.10 says, in every single point and you stumbled just one time, then you're guilty of that particular sin, right? Is that what James says? No, he says you're guilty of all. So you're saying I can keep the whole law and if I lie one time, I'm just as guilty as a murderer in God's sight? Yeah, that's what the Word of God says. That's what Paul has been building up to. So we need a righteousness apart from the law because if we want to get to heaven based on our ability to keep the law, we are toast, literally and figuratively. 
we're toast. We're in big trouble. And so God's righteousness has nothing to do with mankind keeping the law. In fact, look at verse 20. We just came out of chapter 3. He says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, some flesh will be justified. Or does your Bible say no flesh will be justified? See, this is all-encompassing. There's no exceptions to this rule. No one will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And all the law did was function like a mirror. It showed us that we're sinners. It showed us we had a need. But just like if you have dirt on your face, you don't take the mirror off the wall and clean yourself up. The law was not designed to clean yourself up. We need something apart from the law. We need God's righteousness. And praise God it's apart from the law. You don't want to be judged according to the law. The law has no grace involved in it. It sees black and white. You are guilty or not guilty. And it's not a curved judgment. You don't want anything to do with the law as it relates to getting to heaven. So praise God. His provision is apart from the law. We need that. You know, trying to keep the law is like jumping out of the airplane and instead of grabbing a parachute, you grab a bag of concrete. That's what trying to keep the law to get to heaven is like. It's going to take you there a little bit quicker and just assure your arrival as as somebody that's going to be guilty before the judgment seat of God. So it's apart from the law. Praise God that his righteousness is apart from the law. And then we see that God's righteousness is revealed. Notice in verse 21, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law, it says, is revealed. We look at the the verb tense in the the Greek, and it it has been revealed, and it remains revealed. Have you ever uh, seen a show where they say, okay, we're about to show you something. Look at it real quick, because you're only going to see it for two seconds. And they pull something back, and then they shut it, and then they start asking you questions about that. In fact, I heard that's one of the ways that they interview Secret Service agents. They'll show them a picture of a building with people walking around on a street, let them look at it, study it for a minute, shut it up and say, okay, what was the, did you see the, the family on the sidewalk? What was the mom wearing? What, what color blouse? Do they still use the word blouse? Okay, what color shirt? That's old school, old school blouse, right? What color, what color shirt was she wearing? What color hair did the baby have in the stroller? No, no, not on the left side of the street, on the right side of the street. And they're testing their ability to comprehend. This is not how God revealed the gospel. What we see in the verb tense is that he, he revealed it and it remains open. He, he pulled back the curtain and he's leaving it open. See, God is not trying to hide his method of righteousness from you and from I. He is openly, conspicuously leaving it open so that every single one of us can know what it takes to get to heaven and know what his solution is to get to heaven. He's not trying to hide it. From us. He's not trying to hide the acceptable way of getting to heaven or being made righteous from us. He's not some, you know, I, I think about those old middle school dances. He's not these, uh, you know, the middle school girls that stand out in the corner and, and they're leaving girls out of the conversation, hiding, laughing, and, and trying to keep it hidden. There's no secret handshake to get into heaven. There's not, you know, it's not the Barney, not Barney, Fred Flintstone and the secret handshake at the Moose Lodge to get in. It's nothing like that. God has revealed his method of righteousness. God wants everybody to know. We want to shout it from the rooftops. And whether or not people accept it or reject it, that's up to them. But God is not hiding it from anybody. 
You know, I, everybody asks the question, how could a loving God send anybody to hell? They're asking the wrong question. How can a just God let anybody into heaven? That's the question that needs to be asked. See, we're, we missed that point, but God is not trying to hide it. In fact, we know from 2 Peter 3, 9, he wants everyone to be saved. He wants everyone to come to repentance, a change of mind, understanding that they need the righteousness that only he can provide. And you know what the problem is with moral people and religious people? They don't want God's righteousness. They want to get there on their own. That's the problem. And Paul said, don't do it that way. Don't approach righteousness that way. This is a serious issue. You don't have enough to get you there. And now we're hearing about what God is providing. And you know what? He wants everybody to know. He's not hiding it. This isn't a secret club. This isn't a secret handshake deal. He wants everybody to know how to get to heaven, what his righteousness is all about. And then third, verse 21, we see that uh, his righteousness, uh, that last phrase is being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, uh, God's way of righteousness is not some new invention that Paul came up with. This is not going to be superseded by somebody that gets an additional revelation and said, oh, no, God's not working that way. Now he's working this way. This was God's way from the beginning. This has been testified, witnessed to in the Old Testament. And by the way, present tense participle there, it's presently being testified from the Old Testament. That means that if all you had was an Old Testament in your hand, you could preach the gospel to people. Because it testified. It testifies of God's method of righteousness. How does he take sinful man and declare them righteous? The Old Testament testified of it. In fact, starting when I get back from Liberia, we're going to do a three-week series looking exactly, working our way through the Old Testament to see how did this happen? Where was this message found in the Old Testament? And it may surprise you, but it's there. Those of you who have never done a study like that, you'll enjoy it because it is the central theme of the Bible all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And you'll see it in the word of God for yourself. But Paul is saying this is not a new way. In fact, Paul says that God's righteousness as witnessed in the Old Testament can be obtained through the gospel. This is how you get it. In fact, those of you, uh, you can turn with me if you like, but 1 Corinthians 15 gives the most... um, clear explanation of what the gospel is that we preach. If you want to turn there with me, you can. 1 Corinthians 15, um, starting in verse 3. And we've looked at this before, but notice this repeated phrase, starting in verse 3. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins. And then notice this phrase, according to the scriptures. What scriptures is he talking about there? He's talking about the Old Testament. See, this, this gospel that we preach has its basis in the Old Testament. It's found there. This isn't some new thing that Paul came up with. Continuing on, verse 4, and that he was buried, and then he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. We see that phrase again. So was Christ's death prophesied about in the Old Testament? Yes. Was Christ's resurrection prophesied about in the Old Testament? Yes. And that's what Paul is saying. God, you know, the the Jews in this case with their religion had gone off. Remember, they thought, okay, how I'm made righteous is I'm circumcised. I'm a child of Abraham and I keep the covenant. I'm in. I'm in. That was the mindset. They had missed the whole point. God's righteousness doesn't come through nationality. It doesn't come through ritual. It doesn't come through religious observance. None of those things is how you get God's righteousness. And the Old Testament has testified about this 
all along the way. And that's Paul's point here. And so we get out of verse um, 21 and we move on to 22. And, and, and here it is. Here's the answer. How do you get God's righteousness? And you got to say, well, man, if it's not according to the law and he's, he's revealed it and it's been witnessed in the law and prophets, it's got to be a lot tougher than keeping the law, right? I mean, it, God's standards have got to be higher than that. I mean, I know we're not perfect, but, but give me something to do, God. Give, just give me anything to do and I'll do it. Tell me to run around this church 50 times and do 50 push-ups. I mean, I would probably have a heart attack at my age if I did that. But I would try to do it if that's what it took to, to, get, to get to heaven. Just give me something to do. And you know what God's message is going to be? Stop working. Stop trying. Stop making an effort to save yourself. And you say, whoa, that sounds like a backwards approach to religion. And you know what? It is. It's flipped upside down because if you take every other man-made religion in the world besides Christianity and they will teach a message that you got to do something or stop doing something to get to heaven. Christianity takes that and says, no, God has done it all. See, we got a, we got a, a relationship with God. We've got a teaching that says everything that needs to be done for you to go to heaven has been done. Stop trying to do And trust in what God has already done. See, it's a totally different approach than what religion teaches across this land. And so we see in verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. You know, we're made righteous with God on his terms. And you know, his terms are very simple. Stop working, stop trying, stop making an effort, and trust in the very thing that I have approved, that I have accepted on your behalf. Trust in the finished work of Christ. This is why the gospel is so important, because the gospel is that Jesus died for you. Jesus died in your place so that you wouldn't have to die. And then How do we know God accepted his death on your behalf? Anybody could say, I'm going to die for the world. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to, I'll die for every, yeah, I'll take your, your hit. Anybody could say that. How do we know God accepted his sacrifice for us? Well, we also read that God rose him from the dead. God put his stamp of approval on Jesus Christ. He will accept his death in your place for your penalty. The question is, will you accept his death in your place for your penalty? That's really the question. And the Bible calls that faith, trust, rely, rest in Jesus Christ. Will you simply collapse and trust in the one the Bible calls a Savior? What do saviors do by definition? Man, they save you. (laughs) Jesus is called a Savior. That means he can save you. In fact, by the way, if the Bible calls him a Savior, what's that also imply? You and I need saving. That's just... The implication, if he's a savior, that means we need to be saved from something. And so the Bible simply implores us that Jesus paid it all. Will you put your faith in him? And the Bible says that when you do that, God's righteousness, you come into God's righteousness. We'll talk about that in a little bit more detail here in a second. But read verse 22 with me again. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. You know, the means by which we obtain God's righteousness is through faith in Jesus Christ. You know, that is a simple message that gets so mixed up 
and so confused in our day. Notice that it says faith. It doesn't say I'm going to give my heart to Christ. It doesn't say I'm going to give my life to Christ. It doesn't say I'm going to pray a prayer. It doesn't say I'm going to walk an aisle. It doesn't say I'm going to stand in the back of the church and do jumping jacks until I pass out. Because that's just as biblical as everything I just said before that. Because did you give your heart or your life to Christ or did he give his life for you? What's biblical? What's God going to do with your dirty old heart and my dirty old heart anyway? He doesn't want that. And that's not even the message of the gospel. The gospel has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with Jesus Christ. Uh, On a day in history, 2,000 years ago, when he went up the hill by himself, bearing the sins of the world, died on the cross, was tortured, was buried, and rose again the third day. That's the gospel. You're not even in that equation. We're simply told to believe that, to trust that. So to walk an aisle, to pray a prayer, to give your heart, to give your life, to ask Jesus in your heart, all of those things are not faith. Faith is ceasing from activity and trusting in the work of another. Faith is simply resting in what Jesus Christ has done for you versus trying to do more yourself. That's why God's way coming to him through righteousness is so confusing for many people because they say, well, surely there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Surely I got to do something for this. Surely he wants me to run around the church, put tables away, put money in the offering plate. Surely he wants me to do this and stop doing this. Surely, surely, surely. And God is trying to convince us through the gospel that all has been done. Will you simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? It's a simple message. Very simple message. Um, And although it's free to us, it costs God everything. It costs him the life of his dear son. And, you know, we, we see this phrase in this verse that the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, it comes to all. That means it's available to anybody. That means you and I cannot out the grace of God. There's only one chief sinner and he was the apostle Paul and he died. So everyone else is at least a vice chief or under him, right? He called himself the chief sinner, but there's no sinner too bad. In fact, if you are a sinner this morning, you qualify for salvation. In fact, you may realize it more than the person that's not such a quote-unquote bad sinner by our cultural standards because they're going to be trusting in themselves. They think they're good enough often. But, you know, this is true of anybody. This is how a sinful Jew is saved. It's how a sinful Gentile is saved. It's how everybody is saved. Nobody else gets in any other way. And if you want to say that's intolerant, if you want to say that's exclusive, I agree with you. It is. But it's not my message. It's the message of the Bible. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. That's just the message of the Bible. If you don't like it, okay. Don't get mad at me. I'm not creating this. I'm not making it up. It's found in the Bible. And as you understand Paul's argument in the book of Romans, you understand why he's the only way. You understand why that's the only solution. It'd be like in Noah's day saying, yeah, I think the way I'm going to survive this flood is I'm just going to climb to the top of the tree and hang on. That wasn't going to work. <laughs> the only way of salvation in Noah's day was to get into the ark. Have God shut the door behind him. In a similar way today, the only way to be saved is to come to God his way through his provision and believe on what he's done through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a very, again, simple message. You know, what's interesting is, and I'm going to bring this verse up here, but you can, um, if you want to, turn in your Bibles the, the same way, but it's, it's 2 Corinthians 5.21. Uh, again, talking about this righteousness of God. 
You know, what's so interesting about this verse, let's read it. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Whereas Roman tells us the means to gain the righteousness of God, it's through faith in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 kind of explains how he does it. It's a, it's a real interesting exchange. And those of you um, I know have heard this lot, uh, a lot here, especially from the uh, Florida Bible College background. But, um, you know, 2 Corinthians 5.21 is a great exchange. It's, it's God taking our sin and putting it on Jesus Christ to bear the penalty for that sin for us. And instead of, um, I like the explanation better like this. If, if this paper represents us and this represents Jesus Christ, it's not God taking Christ's righteousness and putting it over here separate like that, where we're given the righteousness of Christ. Notice how it words it there. We become the righteousness of God in him. The better illustration, I think, is something like this. See, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, God places you in him. Now, when I see this now, do I see you? Do I see me? Or do I see Jesus Christ? See, that's the message of righteousness. That's why you can take this to the bank. This is why if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can know right where you're seated today, 100% sure that you're going to heaven. Why? Because God has placed you in Christ, and when he sees you, he now sees his son. Anything wrong with Jesus Christ? (laughs) You think there's anything at fault with Jesus Christ? God the Father said, I wish he was a little bit more like this. No way, are you kidding me? And so the moment you put your faith in Christ, God places you in Christ and your righteousness is such that it's the same as Jesus Christ. He is your righteousness. He doesn't just give you his righteousness. He is your righteousness. You're completely identified with him, never to be changed again. That's a permanent position that you and I have the moment we put our faith in Christ. Isn't God wonderful? I mean, isn't God incredible the way that he put this together? Nothing confused him. He didn't have to sort this out. He didn't have to go through and get his, his partnership up there and go through contingencies and, well, make sure we got this covered in this space. No, he got it all figured out. He knows how to get you there. He knows how to save you. And so this was the method by which we uh, obtain righteousness, the righteousness of God. The other thing we're going to see is when we get into chapter 4, he's never changed his method by making man righteous. See, so many people, when they view the Old Testament, they say, well, yeah, they got saved by keeping the law. We get saved by grace. Oh, yeah, that was the old covenant. This is the new covenant. No, nobody got saved by the law. Nobody got saved by good works, not even in the Old Testament. Everybody that's ever been saved has gotten saved the same way we get saved today, by grace, through faith, in the coming deliverer. That's, that's the deal. And we'll look at this a little bit more closely as we get into chapter 4. But Paul is going to give two Old Testament examples to prove that God has been saving men this way for all time. This isn't a plan B for God. Oops, plan A didn't work out. I better figure out how to right this ship. No, he had it all figured out from the beginning. And so we see that, um, we'll see that in chapter 4. We'll also see that in the topical series that we'll break out and do right after I get back from Liberia. Now, why is this important? Here's why it's important. All of us have sinned. Nobody has another way to heaven. Nobody has another opportunity. We all need God's righteousness. You know, we see this verse in verse 23. We use it a lot, but, you know, just to point out, and I've got it highlighted and bolded up there, but, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
Not just, not just your neighbor that's, you know, blows leaves on your lawn, you know, the, the, the guy that you wish would move or something. Not just him. He's not the only one that deserves hell. We've got to understand that we all deserve hell. But praise God, he wants to give you a heaven you don't deserve and save you from a hell that you do deserve. And so many of us don't think we deserve hell, but when we look in light of the scripture and what it teaches, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. You know, we look at this whole concept of uh, have sin. It's, uh, it's what they call an indicative mood in the Greek, just a mood of fact. In other words, nobody could debate this point. This is like uh, the law. I mean, er- <laughs> nobody could say, oh yeah, I've never sinned. Now people may try. You ever talk to someone like that? I've talked to people like that. Oh, I've never sinned. I'm like, yeah, you just lied to me. <laughs> but, you know, the, the point is, is when, they, when, they, when we say sin, it, they've missed the mark. It'd be like an archery, the guy in the picture there, missing the mark. Not only missing the bullseye, missing the mark. That describes all of mankind that we have sinned. You know, I, um, I'm, for the first time, we're a, pool, we're a pool owner. We own a pool. And... Um, that's a, those that have owned pools, that's a blessing and a curse. You know exactly what I'm talking about. This time of year, what I have found interesting and didn't know before is that if you don't get out and scoop the leaves up quick enough off the top of the water, they go down to the bottom of the water, and they're a little bit harder to get down there. And, um, you know, that's a struggle. And I, I literally can only go out about 30 minutes at a time because I get so frustrated because they're floating away from me and dirt particles. But I'm trying to do the best I can. But, you know, in the terms of God saving people, you know, he had to go down and scoop us all off the bottom. Don't kid yourself to think, oh yeah, well he saved me, but I was one of those leaves on the top. No. He, He was going to the deep end for all of us, if you will, because this says all have sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And, uh, you know, not only have they sinned, not only have we sinned past tense, but this falling short is a present tense. We're presently falling short of the glory of God. I get this image of my mind because fall short just means to be last or behind. It It means inferior to lack. But if we all went down to the tip of Florida and all took a running jump to jump to the Bahamas, you know, we could do that all day. And, And I might be able to jump farther than you and somebody else might be able to jump farther than me. But how many of us would reach the Bahamas in one jump? Zero. That's the point of this verse right here. But I mean, you could swim back to the shore and say, I was close. I'm gonna go do it again. And you could just keep doing it, but you're going to continually fall short. God does not want you to try to get to heaven based on your own merits. He is trying to convince us, persuade us that you cannot get there. But it's not to judge you and laugh at you, ha ha, you can't make it. It's to say, now that you recognize you can't make it, let me give you the solution. Can I provide you with the solution? I want you to spend eternity for me, but you got to come to me my way. Let me take care of your sin problem. Let me take care of your righteousness problem. And I did that through the gospel. I did that through my son. All you have to do is believe in him. Will you trust Jesus Christ alone to be saved? And that's God's message to us in the gospel. And so verse 24, it it brings up a good question for, for those who are um, thinking people in the audience, you're, you've probably thought this thought before, or maybe as I pointed out, you'll say, yeah, that's a good point. But here's the question. How can a righteous God save an unrighteous man and still remain righteous in doing so? You ever thought about that? In other words, how can God, who the Bible says he's just, that means he's a perfect judge. 
how can God execute justice on lawbreakers and still let you and I go free? You ever thought about that? That's a conundrum. I mean, it would be for us. It wasn't for God. God figured it out. But, you know, that's the thing. This is not God making all, you know, as parents, and I know you relate to this. You know, you've told your child, if you do that one more time, then, and you go overboard with the consequence. Like, you'll never leave this house again. Like, you're going to follow through on that one. You know, parents do stuff like that all the time, don't we? You won't eat ice cream until you're 18 years old or whatever. You know, and we come out with these just outrageous punishments that we have no intention of following through. And, you know, God doesn't do that. When God says the penalty for sin is death, guess what the penalty for sin is going to be? Death. It's real simple. He, he doesn't mince words. He doesn't equivocate. He doesn't go back and forth on what he decides. And see, death not only talks about or explains why we die physically, but it also explains a, a separation, an eternal separation, an eternal death that the Bible refers to as a second death in the lake of fire. So this is, we're talking about serious business. And each one of us that have ever broken God's law, that's the sentence that we deserve. And because God is just, he has to give us that sentence. You know, imagine going into a courtroom, being caught red-handed for a crime, and then just asking the judge, you know, judge, I've been caught red-handed. I know I'm guilty, but please forgive me. I'll never do it again and let me go. How's that going to work out for you? Anyone ever tried that defense? (laughs) I I tried it as a kid, um, not to bring up my speeding uh, issues again, but you know, with a, with a speeding ticket, you know. Hey, judge, I'll never do that again. And it didn't work for me. So, but um, it's not going to work with the judge of the universe either. So how does God declare somebody righteous? How does he legally and fairly above board declare somebody righteous? You know, is he a, a type of judge that has got a back door in heaven and if you pay enough into the church, he's going to let you slide in and just commit a miscarriage of justice? In fact, how would you feel if a lying, thieving, adulterous murderer caught red-handed in the act, just some human judge just let them off because they paid enough money, knew the right people, said they would never do it again, they were sorry? How would you feel about that judge, especially if that, perp- that person had perpetrated those acts against somebody you loved? Oh, we'd be calling for that person's head, wouldn't we? We'd be... We'd be Lying in wait, probably, to, to bum-rush that guy with some friends. Uh, that's exactly how we would approach that. So, so God is going to remain just, but God is also per- perfectly loving. So how does he put all this together? Well, look at verse 24. Verse 24 says, Being justified freely by his grace. Now notice this next word, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You know, it's important to point out that the, the word justify here is in the passive voice. And you know, you know why that's important? Because either on, on judgment day, either God is going to declare you righteous or you got no hope. Nobody is going to be able to talk their way into heaven, prove to God, declaring themselves righteous. In fact, when we go back to uh, Romans 3.19, notice what it says. Now we, who know, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be what? Stopped, closed, shut up. Nobody is going to be able to declare themselves righteous on that day. 
We need the God of the universe to declare you righteous. And guess what? If God declares you righteous, what can anybody else say about that? I mean, they might, they might say, how could God save a sinner like John Clark? You know, I got the same question too. I have the, how can he? But all I know is what he tells me right here, that if I put my faith in Christ, he declares me righteous. Wow, do I deserve it? No. <laughs> We're going to look at these three descriptions here. But how does Paul describe this concept of justification? Well, the first thing he describes is justification as a free gift. You know, that word freely there um, means gift in the Greek. It's a gift. Uh, It's something given undeservedly without cause. Has anybody ever had to pay for their own Christmas gift when you were a child? Did mom and dad, along with your Christmas gift, also slide an invoice across the table to you? No. Why not? It's a gift. Gifts are free to the person receiving the gift. Who does it cost? The person giving the gift. See, the gift is free to the person receiving the gift. So this means that to to be declared righteous by God, it's a free gift when somebody simply believes on Jesus Christ. Now, who paid for it? Jesus Christ. We're going to see he did that through his redemption. But you get it for free. It's a free gift. You don't have to do anything to earn it. You don't have to do anything to deserve it. We see the second description backs that up as well. Verse 24 We're justified freely, but we're justified freely by his grace. Again, grace is similar to the word freely. It means that you get it. You don't deserve it. God is determining to give you something that you don't merit, you don't earn. He's not going to slide an invoice across the table and say, by the way, if you want to keep it, you got to start doing this. You know, imagine if, imagine if that happened at Christmas. Your, your mom and dad, they give you a bicycle as a little kid, and you start riding around the neighborhood for a couple days. Man, you are having a blast on that thing. I, re- I remember those days riding bicycles around the neighborhood. It was fun. You're ramping it up, trying to hit bumps so you can get some air time. All sorts. But imagine two days in, my, my folks said, well, here, here's your payment plan. My payment plan for a gift? And yet many people, that's exactly what they preach the gospel. That's exactly how they preach the gospel. It's free, but you got to do something. But it's still free. Okay, I, you know, I'm not the most educated man in the world, but that's a contradiction. I don't care if you're speaking out of both sides of your mouth and it makes sense to you. Free means free. Free means you don't have to do anything to get it. Free means you don't have to do anything to maintain it. Free means free. This isn't the way we set it up. This is the way God set it up. You know why? Because if you had to do anything to earn it or deserve it, you would fail and nobody would go to heaven. He had to do it this way. That's that's the beauty of the gospel. No, nobody deserves it. Yes, your neighbor who's horrible doesn't deserve it, but neither do you. You are a leaf on the bottom of the pool, just like your awful neighbor, just like your awful coworker, just like your awful boss, just like anybody else who's awful in your life. And I know that list and number seems to grow by the day in our society, but everybody doesn't deserve it, nor can they earn it, nor can they maintain it. I don't care how hard they try. It's a free gift. It's given by God's grace. You will never, on your best day, deserve this free gift. Now, here's, here's where it really gets interesting, and we, we probably, uh, we'll get into it a little bit this morning, but... Um, we're justified freely by his grace, verse 24 tells us, and it's through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. It's through 
the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. And so we see that justification, our declaration of righteousness in God's eyes, is through a paid price. God's demands for righteousness were met in his son. See, take us back to the courtroom now. And as you're standing there guilty before a judge, he pronounces the sentence guilty. Penalty is death. Imagine if somebody came in through the courtroom, stood in front of you, and took your place. Paid the penalty. See, the penalty still has to be executed. But what God has, God has figured out a way, and I hate to even say it because it wasn't like it confused him. He knew what he was going to do. But what God has done is he has taken Jesus Christ, his perfect son, who didn't have to die for any of his sins because he was perfect, could die for the sins of the world. And Jesus stepped in front and said, I will take his penalty for him. And as a result, God can let you go free. God can let you off, if you will, but it's not because he just forgot about your sin. No, there was a penalty paid. You just don't have to pay it. Jesus paid it for you. And that's what we see in this word redemption. Jesus paid the redemption price. And the reason that God can justify the one who believes on Jesus is because he paid this price. This word redemption is, a, is an interesting word in the culture. It means to let go free for a ransom. Um, it was used in the, in the slave markets of the day where they would, you know, hoist these, the, these slaves up, you know, like cattle. Uh, and like you would expect, if you were looking for a strong worker in the field, you would, you'd want to see their, their muscular structure. You'd want to see if they, they looked healthy before you put in a bid to buy them. And, and most people that bought slaves, they bought them for a purpose. You know what it was? Buy them, take them home, work them to death, and then go buy another one. That was the deal. Work them to death in the slowest way possible so I can get the most out of my money. I mean, that was really what they wanted to do. But occasionally, an owner would, quote-unquote, redeem a slave. And the way it worked, it was very similar to how the process started with any kind of purchase of a slave. But they would actually take a slave off the slave block, pay the price for them, bring them out of the slave market, undo their chains, and say, you are now free to go. That is redemption. That is the word that we're looking at here. In fact, Paul throws a a preposition on the front of this word, really to give it a little bit more emphasis, meaning to ransom away from with the idea of never going back. And this is what Jesus did for you. This is what Jesus did for me. He redeemed us out of the slave market of sin and set us free. Set us free from the penalty that was really due to us. And you know, the reason we needed redemption is because we were under this death penalty. There was a payment that was due. The question was, are you going to pay it? Or are you going to let somebody else pay it for you? And see, God has devised a way that somebody else can pay that for you. His name is Jesus Christ. He paid it with his own blood by dying on the cross and rising again. And so the question becomes, are you going to accept God's payment method? Or do you want to pay it for yourself? You know, And don't treat this like a lunch date. Where, oh, I'm not going to let him pay for me. I'm going to pay my own way. Because you won't, if you pay your own way, you're not going to have enough. You're going to be short. Let God pay it. Let let God's solution be your solution. Let God's idea be something that you tenaciously believe in. Don't, Don't come to God in your own way. That's not the way to be saved. And so he goes on to say in verse 25 that God is satisfied with Jesus' work on the cross. Verse 25, whom God set forth 
as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. You know, let me, let me just introduce this verse this morning and we'll pick up here um, next week and Lord willing, we'll, fin- we'll finish the chapter. But let me just introduce this verse for a second. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. And we'll get into a lot more detail next week. But let me just, let me just tell you basically what this verse is saying. God has, uh, propitiations, uh, you know, they say, you know, it's a $5 word. This is probably like a $20 word. This is big. <laughs> this is a big word. And it's, um, you know, if you've never seen that word before, it might not really ring a bell. But, but what it means is um, satisfaction is probably the best way to describe it. In other words, God set forth Jesus Christ as a satisfaction for, for payment, okay? In other words, God was, you could use it as a verb, God was propitiated. He was satisfied with Jesus' work on the cross. And so what we're going to see is that God set forth, this word set forth has this idea that he put him in full public view, okay? He wasn't trying to hide how he was going to deal with the sin problem. He put him in full public view. He put him up on a hill. He put him up on a cross for every man to see. He, he, he crucified him in full public view. Why did he do that? We're going to get to the end of this verse to demonstrate his righteousness. That word demonstrate, I want you to keep this in your mind. Everyone kind of do like this? Yeah. And God was pointing that day on Mount Golgotha, Mount Calvary, at his son. God was demonstrating his righteousness that day when Jesus died for your sins and rose again. And God is pointing his finger continually saying, look there, look there, look at that man. That's where I dealt with sin. That's where I can provide righteousness, right there. And he's pointing his finger. And that's what we're going to look at next week as we uh, continue our study. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus and what he did for us. Um, Lord, we just, we just, uh, just sit here in, in awe and wonder uh, at the way you, uh, you took our, our, our sin problem, the penalty we deserved. You, you solved that in the gospel, and then you solved our righteousness issue in the gospel. And um, you did it so perfectly. Uh, we can trust you. And, and so that's our heart's desire uh, this morning, for anyone that's not that's here that's never put their faith uh, in your provision, we ask, Lord, that you'd, you'd uh, convince them of the truth of the gospel, that they would put their faith in you this morning and know for sure that they have eternal life. Uh, Lord, for those uh, of us who have already put our faith in Christ, uh, our heart's desire is to, is to be um, uh, really just occupied with him and raptured with him in our daily life. And so would you, would you also work that uh, into our thinking, into our perspective. As we make decisions on a daily basis, may he always be uh, at the forefront of our thinking. And so I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.